comes the sun, little darling. Here comes the sun. I say it's alright. It's alright. Here comes the sun, little darling. Here comes the sun. I say it's alright. Derek Mann, and welcome to Voices from the Frontline, the National Movement Building Show. And today's subject is something I care about a lot. Fred Hampton, assassination by the FBI in conjunction with But I'm investigating and interrogating an article from Jacobin Magazine. It's called, We Obtained New FBI Documents on How and Why Fred Hampton Was Murdered. Uh, I even start with a premise that I'm not sure what documents you could have gotten because we all knew how and why Fred Hampton was murdered when he was murdered, really. And um, I was at his funeral on December 4th, 1969. I'm very impressed by Jacobin Magazine, but I don't generally agree with its politics. It's, it calls itself democratic socialist. I think its politics is very pro-imperialist or certainly not anti-imperialist. I think it's very weak on race. Uh, I think it sort of is the Bernie Sanders politics. And yet it's a very impressive magazine. I, I subscribe to it. I think they do a great job of their politics. Uh, secondly, the two authors of this article, Aaron J. Leonard and Conor A. Gallagher, have a very impressive history that I'm just learning. Uh, Aaron J. Leonard wrote a book called uh, The Folk Singers and the Bureau about the investigation of the FBI going after all the communist folk singers. Uh, and there's another book called uh, The FBA War on American Maoists. So they're doing a lot of work. And then uh, Conor Gallagher read an article that he was trying to rebut the efforts of the FBI to try to convince James Foreman, the great James Foreman of SNCC, to become an informant. But again, the things I'm trying to say is that I don't think the movement is taking seriously enough what kind of a police state we live in, that the FBI is in every organization, that everyone's phone is tapped, that any organization is infiltrated by its very nature. And it's virtually impossible to carry out good work without informants, with informants who are coming there purposely to intervene in the internal affairs of your organization, to take advantage of the conflicts, the so-called intelligence they're getting, they're watching. And of course, the very destructive role they played in the murder of Fred Hampton, we're gonna get into. 
But I want to end with their very bad conclusion, because this is the problem. When people say that they're doing what's called muckraking or investigative journalism, right? They're going to look at a problem, but they're very political animals. So I'm going to start with the conclusion first, because it's not really that they discovered, in my opinion, very much new. What they discovered is support for their politics that I think are bad politics and are slanderous actually about the Black Panther Party and don't shed light on the problem. So I'm gonna start with their conclusion because I think we know uh, the basic facts of this story, right? Um, the basic facts of the story is that a, an FBI informant named William O'Neill, a black man, was sent into the Chicago chapter of the Black Panther Party first to get information, a so-called informant to bring information, to ingratiate himself into the leadership of the Black Panther Party and to bring information to the FBI. He later became so dangerous and so ingratiating with Fred that he actually drew a picture of Fred's house, including where his bed was, and directly participated in the, in the assassination of Fred Hampton in his bed and Mark Clark. There was originally a lot of shots, you know, basically Chicago police just shot the hell out of that apartment. And investigative journals, journalists came in and found out that almost all the bullets were going into the apartment and very few uh, bullets were going out of the apartment. But what do we get out of that? That's the point. Most of us sitting here who don't have the courage to be in the Black Panther Party, don't have the courage to pick up a gun, don't have the courage to do armed self-defense, listen to their conclusions. Don't get fooled again. Now that's a pretty terrible slogan um, what comes through in the new material is how successful the FBI was in seizing on the Chicago chapter's weaknesses. Not only the heightened vulnerability that came with the dynamic of police attacks and armed self-defense, but also with rumor and innuendo. What comes through in this new material is how successful the FBI was in seizing on the Chicago chapter's weaknesses. So you've already started by saying weaknesses twice. So basically what they're saying is when the FBI comes in and if they kill you, that's because of your weaknesses. That Jacobin magazine isn't gonna have folks. And those Black Panthers, if it wasn't for their weaknesses, they may be alive today. What weaknesses? There are always human weaknesses in any organization. Is your theory that you're going to build an organization with no conflicts, with no sexual politics, with no ego, with no people on drugs, no people on alcohol, no people with careerist aspirations? Those are not weaknesses. Those are the normal human condition out of which you build an organization. While the contending and often confused politics within the organization 
Stop. So now there were weaknesses and they were confused. The Black Panthers were confused according to these two authors. Were ultimately decisive in all of this. Wait a minute, wait a minute. So the contending and often confused politics were ultimately decisive in all of this. Decisive in Fred, Mark, Ann, and Kel. The BPP itself would split in March 1971 with between two equally bad positions. UEP Newton's reformist survival pending revolution philosophy and Eldridge Cleaver's inclination towards political violence. The measures by law enforcement played no small role in these developments. What do you mean no small role? You're really saying that you we screwed up, bad positions, confused positions, reformist positions, political violence positions. The measures by law enforcement played no small role in this. That's another way of saying not a big role. You're basically saying Huey and Eldridge brought it on themselves. That the Bureau would place an informant in a position of rising power, which could keep the FBI apprised of who was in leadership, the status of membership, who might have had weapons or be otherwise legally vulnerable, to say nothing of the sense of the internal disputes, both political and personal, appear as no small reason for their successes, their successes being the FBI. The murder of Fred Hampton and the destructive efforts against the Black Panthers in Chicago by the FBI cannot be undone, but they can be understood and in ways far better than was possible 51 years ago. Armed with such knowledge, a new cohort of leftist activists, white, gutless, sitting around doing nothing, unarmed, a new cohort of leftist activists says, Jacobin, knowing the full perils of incendiary rumors, damaging sectarianism, and the efforts of those who would encourage individuals and organizations, whether informants or simply misguided radicals, to perilously step over legal limits can be made less vulnerable to efforts that were far too successful in the past. You know, it's funny, I'm doing the whole article on what they said. I think I may just do a whole article on the text of, the, of their conclusion. Because the whole conclusion is that William O'Neill came in, became an informant. It's, it's done much better in the film Judas and the, and the Black Messiah. But these conclusions are crazy. All right, the first thing they're saying, that we now have new knowledge, a new cohort of leftist activists, the parallels of incendiary rumor. Now I ask you anybody, if you're in DSA, a very weak organization, there's no rumors. There are no rumors apparently, huh? Nobody talks bad about anybody in DSA. You're all wonderful people. Oh my God, unlike those confused Panthers, all you nice UCLA students, all you overwhelmingly white people, there's no rumors. I'm sure when I get to DSA and I infiltrate it, 
I'm going to find no rumors because you guys just get along so great that unlike the Panthers, you don't spread incendiary rumors. What's an incendiary rumor? Incendiary means burning up. I don't think she gave a good speech. I think he's having an affair with, with him or her. I think he's got careerist tendencies. Are those incendiary rumors or normal backbiting inside almost any organization that's not under democratic sexualism? Damaging sectarianism. This article is damaging sectarianism. Sectarianism is when an organization thinks it's better than someone else. What a joke. Jacobin Magazine versus the Black Panther Party. We really need a Jacobin Magazine to tell us what's wrong with the Black Panther Party, which was only one of the greatest achievements in US Black and uh, political history. This is called sectarian. Sectarian is when your organization, in this case, these two authors, seek personal gain for making the Black Panthers look bad. Sectarianism exists all the time. It exists in the movement. It's a normal, um, incurable disease. It exists inside organizations. It exists between organizations. I think we have a pretty good understanding about sectarianism in LA, and I think we've done a pretty good job. But we're not out there with guns. We're not out there being beat uh, within an inch of our lives by the police. If we are, that's when people start to turn on each other because they come back and they're terrified and people have made mistakes, human errors. Somebody had a gun that they gave you, but it, it wasn't registered or it should have been registered. I mean, that's not sectarianism is when one group thinks it's superior to another. And I think DSA thinks it's superior to everybody else. I asked the people in DSA if that's true. Obviously, DSA thinks it's superior to the Black Panther Party. So you haven't learned anything from that experience. And the efforts of those who encourage individuals and organizations, whether informants or simply misguided radicals, to perilously step over legal limits all right, so let's deal with this. The police say you can't march down the street. And then you do. That's, you went perilously over the legal limits. The United States says that you can't come into uh, the United States as an immigrant. So you perilously go over the legal limits and come in undocumented. Um, the United States says you can't drive without a license. So you're black and you drive without a license and they kill you. Did you go perilously over the legal limits? Is DSA saying that they're gonna stay completely within the laws of the United States? Now, when Asanta Shakur and others, uh, when Asanta Shakur was freed from prison, she was freed by brothers and sisters who went over the legal limits. Were they wrong? When the Black Panthers got guns and then they changed the laws. They changed the laws as soon as the Black Panthers took the guns out publicly. And then they continued to have guns. They went beyond the legal limits. 
So what DSA is saying and Jacobin is saying <laughs> is you have to be completely legal. Otherwise, the FBI almost has a right to come into your group, which they'll come in anyway. So I think it's a terrible article. I think this article really is blaming the Panthers. How can you say there were two bad choices? Let me explain the choices between Eldridge Cleaver and Huey Newton. It was a terrible split. I hated the split inside the Panthers. I was in Weatherman at the time, the weather under uh, an organization. Uh, let me slow this down. I was in the weather above ground SDS group at the time. I had no relationship to the weather underground that had not even begun yet. I was told by Billy Ayers that there was a split between Eldridge and Huey. Eldridge believed in armed struggle. Eldridge believed in um, uh, greater internationalism. Eldridge was going to go to Algeria and set up like an international um, bureau. And Huey was working with Charles Gary, who was uh, a communist. And he was trying to build a united front against fascism. Now, we were worried about that. But was Huey wrong? So many Panthers had been murdered and beaten, including Huey. He was in jail, free Huey, free Huey. We finally got him out. But he was involved in a, in a, uh, a gun battle with the police, as I remember it, where he was charged with shooting a policeman. And it turns out that the policeman actually was shot by one of his own police. That's exactly what happened with Mumia Abu-Jabal. But Mumia um, uh, Abu-Jamal is still in prison and spent so much of his life on death row. Why do we have to assume that they were both bad? How does um, Aaron J. Leonard and Connor A. Gallagher, I don't know their racial background, but how does Connor, Aaron J. Leonard and Connor A. Gallagher decide that they know better than both Huey Newton and Eldridge Cleaver to say they were both bad? Now, I think they were both right. Or they were both trying things out. You know, capitalism, uh, they do really encourage experimentation at the top called innovation. If one company tries to do a, a, a smartphone a certain way, you know, Apple, and um, what's the other big one? Samsung, right? So Samsung says, my new thing is different. People say that's innovation. Now, Huey and, and Eldridge had a brutal split, but they had disagreements. Eldridge felt that the armed struggle had to be continued and protected, but a lot of them went to Cuba and they went to Algeria. Why? Because it was such a great idea. How come they couldn't do it in the United States? The reason being 
they were afraid of being assassinated as Bobby Hutton had been killed by the police. So if Eldridge wants to put out a line of armed struggle and go into exile and bring people with him and set up like an international affairs department, that's not a bad idea. And if Yui says that the Black Panther Party is in grave danger and needs to focus more on class, more on class, not talking about, he's not saying black people shouldn't talk about blackness. He is trying to build an intercommunal movement. He's trying to basically say black people are gonna lead the movement, but we have to be more protected. See, Charles Gary was his lawyer. His lawyer was called, Charles Gary was called the Lenin of the courtroom. A great lawyer, communist lawyer. I must interrupt with the story of my mother who, because all Jewish, many Jewish mothers wish their kids were doctors and lawyers. It's a big thing. And then one of the stories with me and my mom, I said, mom, my mom said, Eric, I think you should be a lawyer. And I said, mom, I don't want to be a lawyer. I'm a communist. And she said, well, why can't you be a communist lawyer? And she was actually right. There were many, many great communist lawyers, Leonard Boudin, Lenny Weinglass, and Charles Gary. Charles Gary, coming from the Communist Party, having seen the repression, was telling Huey Newton that Black Panthers have to be careful. They have to tone down some of the armed conversations. They have to slow down the, the confrontations with the police who were killing them move to a broader program. A lot of us had concerns about that, but who were we? I was a white guy in, in, in weather, Weatherman. I wasn't sure that Eldridge's position was better. I felt bad that the Panthers had a split, but notice how two guys who can't organize their way out of a paper bag, they've written good articles, I think, about the about the police infiltration, but you end up telling us that the main way to avoid getting killed by the police is to avoid the mistakes that the Black Panther Party had. And I would say you're really saying that Fred Hampton brought it down on himself. Because that's what they really do say in the end, that the FBI was really bad, but why did Fred Hampton do this or why did they do that? I drew the opposite conclusion that whether you were nonviolent like Dr. King or spoke of violence like Malcolm X who wasn't even violent, you were murdered. And if you were Fred Hampton working with uh, Puerto Ricans and poor whites from the South, you were murdered. So I don't think this article is very helpful. I think it pretends it's got all great new information and most of the new information is stuff we already knew. And then it uses it to put forth a very anti-Panther point of view. Hey everybody, we are back on Voices from the Frontlines, your national movement building show on KPFK 90.7 FM in Los Angeles. 
streaming live on the web at kpfk.org. And I'm here talking with Channing Martinez, the director of organizing at the Labor Community Strategy Center, where I also work and I work with him. And Channing, one of the things that's been happening as you now direct of organizing, I would say, thank God, is um, you're moving in a lot of circles. And it's hard, I think, to get even a sense of your orientation sometimes because you're moving from meeting to meeting. So I know that you're involved in a coalition called Push OA, which you'll tell us about briefly. Then you're in a coalition called uh, Committee for police free schools where you're working with, well, you tell us who you're working with. And you're also working with the bus riders union to try to get the MTA to stop their apartheid pass system. And you're also setting up all these meetings with elected officials. So tell us, let's walk through each one in a minute or two. And if I have time, I'll try to figure out how you're getting them all to work in your head at the same time. Start with Push LA. What is it? What's it doing? Up. So Push LA is promoting unity, safety, and health in Los Angeles. Uh, and I had to go to the website to remember the name. I remember that off the top of my head. <laughs> but the main thing is the coalition was formed in order to stop the stops, centered around a report by the LA Times that reported that the Metropolitan LAPD Department was... Uh, sending their officers into South LA to target black uh, drivers with uh, traffic stops. Uh, that is still the focus. And right now we're in, this, in an initiative to change the stops uh, and the enforcement of traffic stops from LAPD to possibly Department of Transportation. And there's a really important study going on by the DLT about if that's feasible and how to make it happen. Um, yeah, so we meet every two weeks and it's been great. And what role has uh, Mike Bone play? What role has uh, um, Marquise Harris Dawson played so far? Uh, Marquise came up with this motion to move enforcement uh, from LAPD to the Department of Transportation. And I think Mike Bonin has been very supportive uh, I have to go back and get the details, but I think he might have also co-signed on to the motion, um, which has passed. Um, All right, we'll come back to it, but that means that if you know Marquise Harris Dawson, like Mike, Mike Bonin, tell him that they did a good thing and tell him that you're watching it because you know that that doesn't mean it's going to happen. You know, there's going to be a study and strategy center is going to keep paying attention. So by now, Voices Listener, you should know you know, these are both city council people that, with whom we work. Now let's move to the uh, police-free schools. I know that you work with Students Deserve. You work with um, Community Coalition, Inner City Struggle, a lot of other groups. Now we know that you just won, we just won, as much as $36 million moved away from the police in the direction of Black students and Black schools. But how do you, Channing Martinez, figure out Where's the money? How's it getting there? Is it really getting there? Who's happy with it? What structures exist to even monitor $36 million? Yeah, the main structure that's monitoring it is this new structure formed called the Black Student Achievement uh, 
advisory committee of which we are one of the members and there are members on that committee from the district and then there are uh, and then there's specific groups including us students deserve uh inner city struggle bss and utla and seiu and then in addition to that uh each local district got the chance to also appoint additional um members teachers and students uh, and parents to the committee. Um, it's hard. It's a struggle. We've had, we've met two times now and we are stru- struggling towards unity, but also starting from a place of unity, right? Um, I don't fully understand the whole structure of the, of LAUSD. Uh, I don't fully understand their budget, right? Um, and Sometimes even the board members don't fully understand their structure, right? Uh, and so we are, you know, we're mainly introducing ourselves to each other right now. But the other thing that we're trying to figure out is what can be done this year versus next year? And who has the ultimate decision over the actual spending of the money? And how do we insert ourselves into the process of the district just doing their normal work, like going to speak to the principals, right? Why we would like to be a part of those conversations. And so we're struggling with them to be a part of further conversations like that. Well, I think it's great is that, you know, uh, I was talking to one brother and he's saying, you know, we're not used to the strategies that because we're sort of used to the groups that, you know, say basically the hell with y'all, we're gonna go out and march. And we said, we do that too, but the goal is not to be on the inside, but the goal is to be interacting with the system. Like if you're in a factory, you participate in the union. If you're in the factory, you negotiate with the company. You, you, you learn how the factory runs over time. You know what the problems are. You know the union contract. You, the company comes to you and says, I got some real problems in the market. You got to listen to those, but then you got to be able to count to them and say, well, that's interesting, but that doesn't justify what you're doing. So I think it's great what you're doing. And I think you you always open with, I, I'm learning, or I don't know a lot, but that's really the beginning of knowing, right? Is uh, I think you have to think about it as a several year investment, you know, and I really do think Joseph Williams and students deserve create a real edge for this for us. And I think you do too. I think it's, an, it's important for people to know that Channing Martinez is saying that the labor community strategies that are represented by Channing Martinez is in this black student achievement group. And we're gonna learn a lot about how the school system works and doesn't work. And I think we're gonna have some influence, which is the main form that power takes right now is influence anyway. You know, we don't have the power to force them to do it, but we have the influence to shake things up. Um, now move to the apartheid bus pass and how the MTA is just after, it only took us 30 years to get up to free public transportation. And now some of them are going back to this crazy idea that people have to prove poverty <laughs> in order to get um free transportation. So we're telling all the board members that's unacceptable, but how's that going and what are you doing about it? 
Uh, sure. I think we only have a few minutes left. But, uh, you know, first of all, the term apartheid is not, it's not frivolous. It, that's exactly what it is. We've studied apartheid. And I remember we studied this in 2014 in the planning committee. We collectively came up and basically said, this is like apartheid. So we started calling it the apartheid past. Um, and, you know, what they're doing after 20 years of discontent for the bus riders union and 20 years of discontent from bus riders, cutting more than a million hours of service, raising fares by more than 100% of consent decree levels. They're now proposing and proposing and studying fareless transportation. Um, and Phil Washington has initiated a fareless transportation initiative. And now they want to do a pilot. All of that sounds great except that now as part of this pilot, they would like to do means testing and to, for you to basically prove your income level in order to qualify and enroll in the pilot. Um, now, there are other things that are bad about it, but one thing I'll say is that the fares have been basically free for the last year. So if, this, if it was left up to me, the whole last year would be the pilot, period. That's great. Um, and the other thing is, you know, just when you think that they're on their side, a lot of the board members are basically saying, oh, we want to initiate this because there's a lot of homeless and Black people being targeted by police, by tickets for fare evasion. We care so much about your income, but we're going to be, tr we're going to be charging you to basically pay your income. Uh, I mean, to, to uh, prove your income. And you know it's a it's a false modesty bullcrap statement in my opinion. I don't know what else to call it. Uh, well, that's a good end. That's a good end. I think Kenny, that I'd like you to be a regular. You know, just to our listeners, uh, Kenny's the producer in some ways. He's the co-host, but given all the responsibilities he has right now in the city. Uh, I'd just like you to be a regular, not guest, but a, a regular participant in the program because your evolution as a lead organizer and the, and the number of campaigns you're doing and the constant ability to report to us what the campaign's doing, what are the demands people want, and also your constant evolution as an organizer is a, a great part of the show. So let's just, we'll just, build an infrastructure and with that I'm saying goodnight to everybody because we pre-recorded this uh, that's not a secret uh, it's late at night you'll be getting it tomorrow by the time you get this uh, and then please get on the list because now it's also going to come out as a podcast and if you're on the list you get the podcast list and that's a day or about a day after the show it's on Spotify, it's on SoundCloud, it's on Apple. Channing puts out a beautiful email and there's the link right there. And you click on, so if you heard this show, tell your friends to hear it again and write your comments to Eric at Voices from the Frontlines and Kiana at Voices from the Frontlines. And Kiana Williams and I are going to be reading all the responses and getting back to you. With that, all power to the people and all power to the 
the editors of this show. So hi, this is Eric Mann uh, on Voices from the Frontlines, your national movement building show. And I think you see that everything we do on this show is about the problems and challenges of building an actual revolutionary movement. So now we're going to look at another uh, story inside the story uh, because I was involved directly in this, so I have some sense uh, in the story. And by the way, there are some very good facts in this story. Again, uh, I just want to say how badly I disagree with how strongly I disagree with the political conclusions. So this is an important article, but not nearly as good as the film. Judas and the Black Messiah, but I'm going to give you an example of a story they're telling that's very complicated. It's called Students for Democratic Society. Now, just give you some background. I was in Students for Democratic Society as a national and regional organizer from September of 1967, when I left Newark after the Newark Rebellion, to June 1969 when the organization broke up at its convention. I later went on to join the Weather People after that, after the destruction of SDS. I was in the weather above ground for about three or four months before I went to prison, which is another story. So in the article, it states as follows. In 1969, Students for a Democratic Society, the largest radical student organization of the 60s, broke apart a result of both the group's own internal divisions and efforts by the FBI to head off the group from evolving beyond its big tent inclusiveness into a more disciplined, radical organization. Given that, it is not surprising the Bureau would also expend serious effort to sabotage relations between SDS, whose national office was then in Chicago, and the Chicago Black Panther Party. To that end, there were two COINTELPROs, uh, counterintelligence programs run by the FBI, COINTELPRO with big letters, official disruptive operations that were proposed, approved, and executed in the FBI hierarchy, leveled at SDS, documented in the files. The first scheme aimed to disrespect the BPP in relation to SDS. As head of Chicago FBI wrote to the FBI director, though BPP informants, check this out, they already have informants, and other black nationalist informants, oh wow, we should plant the idea that SDS is exploiting the BPP by trying to use them as cannon fodder for a white revolution. The idea was to use the racial and class differences of the two groups against each other. This comes through in the COINTELPRO New Left memo of May 1st, 1969, where I'm still in Boston. Quote, the concept of white students studying universities while Black Panthers are going to jail or being killed in the ghetto would be encouraged. The FBI was optimistic about the success of this undertaking writing it's felt that BPP would be receptive to charges of white exploitation, 
and may react strongly to it, thus weakening or dissolving the alliance with SDS. Now that's an example of taking an obvious contradiction and the FBI trying to what's called exacerbate it. For instance, in Boston, I was an organizer for SDS, which was a white at the time student organization. We worked very closely with the Black Panther Party. The Black Panther Party did not feel that white students at Harvard and Boston University and others were exploiting them. They didn't. They came to the students and asked for support. There was a group inside of SDS called the Progressive Labor Party, very reactionary, that said all nationalism is reactionary, meaning they opposed Black anything, Black studies, Black language, the learning of Swahili. They really believed that class, class, class was the issue. They were very destructive inside of SDS. And what's scary about it is they had support among white students. Many white students believed on class, not race, even though they were white students in the Middle East elite universities. But I represented the part of SDS that was very pro-Black and very pro-NOF. Uh, and when we met with the Panthers, it was not true that the Panthers said, well, we don't trust you because we're in the street getting killed and you're a bunch of white spoiled students. Um, first of all, I wasn't, I was already an adult. I wasn't a student. I had already been in core. I had been in, uh, lived in Newark. I was about 25 years old at the time. And I was the main one meeting with them. But they liked the students. The students were coming out uh, there was a guy named Dougie Miranda, who was one of the heads of the Black Panther Party. And he was always being attacked by the police. And there was a station in Boston called WBCN. And one of the DJs was called Charles Laquadera, very became famous. And the other was Danny Schechter, your news dissector, a close friend of mine. Anytime the Panthers were being attacked, WBCN would say, the police are moving in front of Doug Miranda's house. Everybody start moving to the house to protect him. And who came? Not a lot of black people, but a lot of white kids from the universities. So yes, co-intelpro tried to cause that trouble, but in fact, I don't think it was very successful. And that's an example of a good political leadership has to overcome these contradictions, knowing that there'll be police agents trying to exacerbate them. So then hedging their bets, the Bureau wrote that if the plan did not work, they could also undermine SDS by amplifying the students' radicals already considerable defensiveness in regard to the Panthers. If the BPP accepts the above, but does not break with SDS, they can be encouraged to exploit SDS by making further demands on them to prove their loyalty. Increased demand for funds and free printing of BPP literature to place pressure on the strained finances of SDS. The COINTELPRO was approved with the FBI cannily 
instructing that sources should be given different arguments so it does not look like a plan. As they explained, under present circumstances, SDS is giving complete, almost slavish support to the BPP, which would jeopardizing the standing of any SDS informant who criticized the BPP. If there's any wavering of the SDS support of the BPP, informants would be used to aggravate any developing split. So <laughs> what they mean is be careful if you're an informant inside of SDS. Because if you start saying things negative about the Panthers, you're going to get exposed because everybody in the in the SDS really likes the Panthers. But if you see openings, like if you see the Progressive Labor Party attacking the Black Panther Party, that gives you your opening. Well, yes and no, because our part of SDS hated the, hated the Progressive Labor Party. And if the Panthers came to us and said, we need money for printing, why would we have very few resources? I had pretty good resources on, on, at, uh, when I worked for SDS. I traveled all over the country and spoke. Uh, and I made a lot of money. I was given very, very large honorarium. I was a very well-known speaker at the time. You know what I did with my money? I gave it to SDS. I mean, I kept some for myself which they knew in order to rent my apartment and eat. But if I go and get a thousand dollars, I'd probably give 500 to myself, which they accepted and 500 to support some of the other organizers. So the second one doesn't make sense either, which is keep making demands on the, on the, on SDS and force them into bankruptcy. That might be what the FBI was trying to do, but SDS should have been able to raise money for the Panthers. Does that make sense? I mean, if you're on a campus, if you're on BU and Harvard and the Black Panther needs, I, I knew the Panthers in Boston, by the way, and this Chicago, they were so young, this, this, they were so brave trying to act all, they were maybe 20 and they were frightened. So neither of these could have been, um, what I'm getting to is the, um, the movement could solve these problems even with the FBI trying to exacerbate him. Now they tell the story. Uh, in Weatherman, Russell Neufeld's re recollection, and Russell Neufeld, I work with him, I'm gonna call him up and get his side of the story. Uh, the Panthers had Weatherman to print their memorial poster for him. But Weatherman, lacking money for the materials, was unable to provide the help. So the Panthers, led by Hampton, stormed the weatherman office and beat members with two by fours while muttering lines from Stalin. Now stop. This is an article about the FBI killing Fred Hampton. You're telling a story that cannot be validated. And why would Fred Hampton talk about Joseph Stalin? That makes no sense whatsoever. He would talk about Mao. He would talk about, you know, why you putting Stalin in the middle of the story. Now you're getting it from another guy. The weathermen were stunned by the Panthers' eruption, attributing it to the immense pressure the Panthers were under. Yes, Newfeld was clubbed by Hampton and bears the scars on his head to this day. So let's say some of this was true. 
I can't imagine Fred Hampton coming into the SDS office and taking a two by four and breaking over the head of people who weren't going to give him printing. But so what if he did? As they said, the man's fearing for his life. He's Maybe he's losing it on that day a little bit. But that's another thing movements have to solve. If you're a white revolutionary, I'm not talking about a black people come and start shooting you. But if they come in and, and on a given moment, rough you up, you got to solve that. I'm not saying you got to say, oh, please beat me up with a two by four. But I'm not sure that story is true. And why would the authors who are writing an article about the murder of Fred Hampton tell a story from another guy about Fred Hampton hitting Russell Neufeld and talking about Stalin if you're not trying to set the conditions to get your reader to think, well, maybe Fred Hampton, I'm not saying deserve to be killed, says the white reader. But that doesn't sound like such a great guy as he was shown in the film. You don't look like a black messiah to me if he hit Russell Neufeld over the head with a two boy four. Well, guess what, folks? He could have been both. But I have no reason to believe that that story happened. And if you're in a story, if you're writing a story, what we know is the FBI killed Fred Hampton. So when you put stuff in there, irresponsible as hell, that's why Jacobin Magazine should shut down for a while and do an internal review of its uh, fact-checking. Because this is an old trick, Jenny. I have not seen an experience, right? I was not there. I was in the Chicago office before Fred was killed. I know for a fact that Fred Hampton took junior high school kids into the schoolyards at five in the morning to do calisthenics. I know that Fred Hampton did Breakfast for Children. We even know in the film that William O'Neill trying to talk like a, I would say a terror, but an ultra left leftist said, let's blow up stuff. And Fred said, no, let's build community centers. So if that's a fact that we know, there's no humanity of Fred Hampton in this story, except that he was killed. So my conclusion is I charge Jacobin Magazine, I charge Aaron J. Leonard and Connor A. Gallagher for writing a racist, journalistic unethical, journalistically unethical article that claims that you found some new lead. The headline is, we obtained new FBI documents on how and why Fred Hampton was murdered. And I think your conclusion is Fred Hampton was murdered because the plant is screwed up. Fred Hampton was murdered because you guys had bad plans. Fred Hampton was murdered because I won't even repeat what you just said about him. There's no discussion of Fred Hampton's humanity in this. This is really claiming that the Black Panthers and Fred Hampton brought it on themselves. And the FBI was a USA, not an insignificant force. You know what not an insignificant force means? I want to make sure I got the, the words right. Not an insignificant force means sort of um, secondary at most, right? Not primary, not the reason it happened, but they were not, how nice of you. No, they plotted the assassination. 
They killed him. They came within an inch of killing his wife and his kid. And they murdered one of the great civil rights leaders of all time. I think this article is despicable. And I plan to write an article using this text that I'm doing to do an article about how despicable this article is. But you're on Voices from the Front Lines. And you heard it here first. This is Eric Mann, the host of Voices from the Front Lines. I'm also Eric Mann, who was with the Congress of Racial Equality. I was Eric Mann, who was in Chicago with the weather people when I was awaiting trial. I was the Eric Mann that has always worked well with the Black Panthers, especially the Boston Black Panthers, who I like quite a bit. The Eric Mann has enormous respect for Fred Hampton and does think he was a Black Messiah. Urge you to see the film with uh, Fred Hampton played by Daniel Kaluuya, William O'Neill played by Lakeith Stanfield, uh, produced by Shocker King, Charles King, and Ryan Coogler. I mean, they did so much work to show the full extent of the FBI not even exacerbating problems, but going in to cause the problem and then going in to just blatantly murder somebody. That's the film. This article is disgraceful. I don't know what's going on with, with, but I ask people who subscribe to Jacobin, I urge you to see the film, Judas and the, and the Black Messiah. I ask you to read this based on what I've said. Read carefully and see if I'm wrong, that these authors, in fact, are caricaturing the Black Panther Party, saying there were two bad choices. How can, I don't want to assume they're white, by the way, I don't know their racial identity, but how can two authors write about the murder of a man, of, of Fred, Ham, uh, Fred Hampton and Mark Clark, and say, well, there were two bad choices that they had, UEN Eldridge, and then say, today, our movement's not going to have that problem because we're not going to be sectarian, even though you wrote the most sectarian article I've seen. And we're never going to break the law. But Fred Hampton didn't break the law. So whether you break the law or you don't break, are you saying you shouldn't do nonviolent direct action? You shouldn't do civil disobedience? It's a stupid article, really. And it's based on, uh, what do you call it, professional careerism. And it contributes to the dominant ideology of the ruling class that, yeah, the police overreact, but let's be honest, says the ruling class, Black people bring it down on themselves by their behavior, and the Black Panther brought it down on themselves by their behavior. That's the punchline of this terrible article. And I urge you to read it and see if you think I'm exaggerating. If you agree, first send me an, an email, eric at voicesfromthefrontlines.com and we could put them all together. And if so, if you also agree, send it to the editors of Jacobin Magazine. We'll get their information. And send it to the two authors and tell them I think that they've done a profound disservice to Fred Hampton and to the movement. He's Eric Mann on Voices from the Frontlines. I can't say it's been a pleasure, but it's been an interesting experience. Hang in there and I'll see you next Tuesday at three o'clock.
and every highway and more, much more than this. I dig my way. Yes, regrets. I've had a few, but then again, too few to mention. Did what I had to do and saw it through without exemption. I